Tell ya, hey, hey, it is so good to be back here at Northbrook Church. Um, I don't know how many of you were here uh, 17 years ago when uh, our family and the launch team got uh, kind of kicked out of the church to go launch Kettlebrook up at uh, up in West Bend. I think we got a picture of that up there, and uh, there we are 17 years ago. And um, and I pastored that church for about 15 years, and two years ago I stepped away and uh, became the uh, mission pastor at Elmbrook. Our family today looks like that, okay? So uh, I am a grandfather times two now, and uh, Matthew, the, the kid behind me, was our youngest child. He was just one year old when we started uh, Kettlebrook Church. So he's like our benchmark to see how long we've been, you know, in, in ministry there. And so he's getting ready to go off uh, to college somewhere out west, somewhere near mountains where he can go skiing. He has high aspirations for, for his education there. So, uh, but it is, it's so good to be here at Northbrook. Our family just loves Northbrook. I mean, uh, Kara and Pam Arbeiter, they're becoming quick besties. They get together and conspire to rule the world in the name of Jesus, you know, and missions at Kettlebrook and missions here at Northbrook. And, and, and I, I love uh, Northbrook because of Mike, because of Mike Belante. And many of you know, uh, you know the, the, the Brook pastors just have huge regard and huge respect for Mike. And, um, and many of you know that Elmbrook, Right now, the church that I work at now is in a current senior pastor search, okay? And so we have hired a search firm to, to help find our next lead pastor. And, and the cynical, skeptical side of me is wondering, do we really need to hire a headhunting agency, a search firm? I mean, can God really work through that? And, and, and I always look at, at Northbrook and I say, yes, yes, he can, because it worked. It worked for you guys. It worked. You guys have, you guys found Mike. And so I'm like, I'm so, you guys give me faith in the process that we're in right now. Now, many of you, if you're new here to Northbrook, you may not know this, but Northbrook is a part of a larger kind of loose network of churches that kind of scatter all throughout the Milwaukee area. And they all trace their roots back to the church that I work at now currently in Brookfield at Elmbrook Church and what God was doing there in the early 80s and the 90s and stuff like that. And in the 80s, Elmbrook Church went on a church planting boom. And they began planting churches all over the place. They planted Eastbrook Church in Milwaukee and Westbrook Church in Delafield. And then they planted Northbrook Church up here and Southbrook Church down Oak Creek. And then they ran out of directions, so they planted Meadowbrook Church in, uh, in, in Wauwatosa. And, and, so, and now there's, there's like a dozen or so churches, Brook Churches, in the area. But what you may not know, what you may not know, what's started happening recently is that the senior pastors of those churches a couple of years ago began meeting regularly and began praying together and, and kind of wrestling through ideas and best practices and doing some training and stuff like that. It's really been a beautiful, beautiful thing. And, and last year, the idea surfaced of what would it look like if all of our churches together did something simultaneously, did something kind of collectively where we all reminded ourselves that we, we all kind of share this, the same DNA, this, the same, you know, kind of history, the same heritage. And this idea was born 
to do a, a sermon series where all the, all the Brook churches in the Milwaukee area would go through the same series at the same time. And so this is the first time in my memory that this has ever happened. And so Mike Vellante right now is giving the message that I'm giving down at Southbrook Church in Oak Creek. And here I am up here with you and we're doing all sorts of pulpit swaps and stuff like that going on. And, and the topic that the Brook pastors kind of landed on for this series that we've been going through for the whole month of January is the topic of unity. Now, why would they want to talk about unity? Like, really? Like, I wonder, wonder why. Like, I, I would say that, that, you know, we are probably living in one of the most disunified times in our nation's history, maybe outside of the Civil War. Okay? There's plenty of things to be divided about and dis, disunity, uh, uh, disunified about, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, whether, when to open schools and to wear masks or not wear masks or all sorts of responses to the, the pandemic and whether you're going to argue about things, whether it's socially or politically or medically, there's no lack of reasons to be divided. But unfortunately, what has happened is that as people in the world have looked at the church in America, they haven't seen anything quite different than what they're experiencing in the world. That when they look at the church, they're seeing a a group of people that are almost just as divided as people outside of the church, Which which is really unfortunate and kind of sad because you would think that as people looked at the body of Jesus Christ that they would see a different ethic, a different narrative than all the chaos and confusion and division that we see in our society. But unfortunately, they have not. And what the global pandemic has instead done is actually expose us in areas that we aren't quite as strong as we may have thought that we are. Now, I did some work with a group uh, called Teen Missions uh, in, in my college years where we sent out teenagers on mission trips for the entire summer all over the, the world. And they go to places like Africa. They would do crazy things like clear jungle for an airstrip and, you know, and, and build schools and stuff like that. And they would live together all, all summer long together, kind of in community. And the guy that I was co-leading with, we were in Europe, the guy that I was co-leading with, uh, right around week four, he looks at me and he says this is the week. And I'm like, this is the week? And he says, yep, this is, this is the week. And I'm like, what week is that? And he said, this is the week that the wheels fall off. And I go, oh, really? He says, yeah, because it's possible to play Christian and pretend to be nice for about three weeks with one another, living in community. But after about three weeks, all bets are off. And people start getting irritated with one another and there's short fuses and stuff like that. And and sure enough, just as he predicted that would happen, began to happen. We began having drama and conflict on the team that we had never had before because what was happening is that we were being exposed for being superficial and shallow in our faith with Jesus Christ, that we weren't really drawing from this deep well of abiding in Christ for our character. And I would say that the same things kind of happening right now, that what this pandemic is actually doing is exposing the church for being superficial and shallow in areas of our discipleship. And it's showing up in our 
inability to be unified even when we disagree with one another. You could kind of say it this way, that we haven't really had to strengthen these muscles, these muscles of being able to agree to disagree agreeably. Right? We don't really do that well. And if you have any lack of data on these points at all, just find one of the elders of Northbrook Church and ask them. And they will tell you that unity is a wonderful concept uh, and, and, and easy to come by as long as we all agree. But the minute we disagree on something, all bets are off. And disunity kind of goes down the drain. We just don't do unity real well. Which is interesting because when Jesus prayed for the church, the only place in the scripture where Jesus prays for us, for you and I, for the people who would believe in the disciples' message, the one thing that he prays for is what? Unity. He prays for unity. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this this awesome high priestly prayer. It's the night before he's about ready to go to the cross. And he prays for you and I. And in verse 20 of of chapter 17 of John, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples that he's praying for. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. Okay, thanks, Jesus. You're praying for us. That's awesome. What are you going to pray for? I pray that all of them may be one. Okay, wonderful. Why is, why is oneness, why is unity so important? I pray that all of them might be one so that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he reiterates that just to prove, kind of, kind of hit down his, his point, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, this whole concept of unity is not some peripheral idea off in the stratosphere somewhere. It's not some tangential, pie-in-the-sky ideal that we hope for and aspire to, but we really don't really believe we're ever going to achieve it. Unity is what Jesus prayed for us. And I don't think he'd pray it for if it, if it wasn't possible. And he said that somehow, mysteriously, unity would be the one thing that causes people to be put on inquiry and really begin to see the church as a credible resource and source of truth. When the church is unified, the world begins to clearly see Jesus in us. But when the, church, when the world sees the church fighting, it gets confused. And it sees a, a, a fuzzy and inaccurate picture of what, who Jesus is. So, the collective council of Brook bishops decided that unity would be a good topic to talk about. And today we're going we're to look at 1 John chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3. You can open up your tablet or your phone or something like that. And I believe the, the verses will even be up on the screen, but we're going to look at First John chapter three a bit. And while you're turning there, I want to give you just kind of the upfront definition of unity. What is it? What is it that we all share? What are the, the essential elements of a unified church? What are the critical components of a unified church? And what uh, all these groups of senior pastors kind of came up with is is four bullet points, basically, that a unified church is a people called by God who are living as family, sent on mission to live as one for the sake of the world. Let me say that again. A unified church is a people called by God 
who are living as family, sent on mission to live as one for the sake of the world. Now, each one of these bullet points is going to be a, kind of a message in the series that you're going through for the month of January. And so last week, Mike talked about what it means. What does it mean to be a people called by God? And today we're going to talk about what it means to live as family. What exactly does it mean by the statement that we have been called by God to live as family? Because let's face it, family can be kind of a polarizing term to many of us. Many of us grew up in families that were awesome, and we were loved, and we were nurtured, and our gifts and abilities were developed, and you know our parents really uh, took our best interests at heart. And, and others of us grew up in families that weren't awesome, but were awful. And they left us traumatized and broken. I think of this woman that I know of who grew up in the Kenosha area. Her name is Judy. And uh, Judy was kind of like a whoops in her family, you know, right? You know, like, oh, weren't all those ones that you weren't really kind of anticipating. Her older brothers were 10 and 12 years older than she was, and so her parents weren't really kind of uh, expecting her. And, uh, and add on to that that her, her dad was an abusive alcoholic with a short temper. So when Judy was very young, her parents got divorced, and she was left living with her mom. And when she was about the age of 10, uh, she was with her mom, uh, at home, and she was she was asleep. Her older brothers had since left the house uh, on their on their own, and her dad came over in a drunken state to try to reconcile with her. And uh, when she politely declined, he became belligerent, and eventually pulled out the pistol that he had with him and shot her dead, and then pulled the gun on himself. And the next thing that Judy remembered was a policeman waking her up. And at the age of 10, she was an orphan and the collateral damage of a murder-suicide. So when you talk to someone like Judy and you tell her that we're called to live as family and God is your father, you can kind of understand why she would kind of get a nervous twitch in her eye, right? Because that metaphor doesn't really inspire her. That narrative isn't something that she's going to really run to embrace. But that doesn't make it any less true of what the scriptures say of those who follow Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, the guy who wrote the words that we're going to read today in the letter of 1 John, he was there, he was there with Jesus when Jesus radically redefined the term family. In Mark chapter 3, we have this, this situation where Jesus is in a house and he's teaching And his family, his mother and his brothers, are outside. And at this point in the story, they have become convinced that he has taken this son of God thing a little too far. And they're going to have like a little family intervention with Jesus. Okay, so they want to have, you know, kind of have this private moment with Jesus. Jesus is inside the the house teaching. And uh, somebody yells inside the house and say, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers, they want to have a word with you. And Jesus says at that point, he says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked around at the people who were around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus here is radically redefining what it means to be family. And he says categorically that followers of Jesus, followers of himself, 
family, in a very real sense, is comprised of those people who are on a similar journey, who have made Jesus their leader, and who are determined to obey the will of God and obey the word of God. And, uh, and so John picks up on this theme that he begins, he heard Jesus begin re, to, to kind of reframe this whole idea of family, and he picks it up in, in John chapter 3. In verse 1, he says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So John begins this whole, whole thought by reiterating a theme that he's begun earlier in his letter, basically doubling down on this whole idea of the fact that when we step into a life-altering, a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, that God, in a very real sense, becomes our Father, and we are adopted into his family, and we are children of God. Now again, for some of us, this concept might be terrific, a terrific concept. For some of us, it might be a terrifying concept, depending on what kind of father you had. But what John wants us to know is that, that, that God, as our Heavenly Father, is nothing less than the personification of love. Just a next chapter later, John is going to make that very simple yet profound statement that God is love. He is the source and the wellspring of love. He is always for you, who always sees your potential. He is always wanting and longing to be in a relationship with you where you can talk and share your hearts and your hearts desires and your fears and your hopes and your dreams. God is love and God is this perfect father, better than, than any earthly father that we could ever ask or imagine. Jesus, when he wanted his audience to really understand the essence and the, the character of God, tells a story of God being a father. And he's a father who has two sons and he just longs to be in relationship with his two sons. And I think that if we ever want to collectively get around to living as family, we need to first individually understand the profound and intense reality that God is our father. And we need to allow ourselves to be fathered or reparented by God. When my wife and I were missionaries in Russia, we, uh, we had this, uh, this church. It was kind of a glorified youth group. They're all college students, right? You know, they, they, they eventually grew up, became a legitimate church. But, uh, but when we first met them, they were, they were all in college. And just uh, great folks. And but as we got to chance to hear their stories, as we discipled them, we would inevitably get to the point when dad walked out of the family. Because fatherlessness was epidemic in Russia in those days. Their, their fathers were either physically absent, emotionally absent, or retreated into a bottle of vodka or something like that. And, and I'll never forget Anya Kuznetsova. We were talking to her. She was one of our leaders and we were counseling with her. And she just, she had this father who was absent from the father and Every single encounter 
with her dad ended in extreme disappointment. He, didn't, he either didn't show up or was disinterested in what she was doing. And so she really struggled with this concept of God being her heavenly father. And we would try to help her to understand what, from the scriptures what it means that God is your heavenly father who loves you, who cares for you, who wants to pick you up, put you on his lap, and have you tell him all about your day. And one day we were counseling with her and we decided to take her, my female colleague and I, take her in prayer and, and together, all three of us, go before the, heavenly, the throne of our Heavenly Father and ask God to reveal his love for Anya. And as we waited there, expectantly, asking God to reveal himself to Anya, Anya just exploded in sobs and started crying in joy and saying, I'm his princess. I'm his princess. God calls me his princess. And she just began to sob in joy. And from that day on, Anya's spiritual trajectory just took off because she began to understand what it meant that God was her father. John says, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Friends, do you know that you're a beloved daughter or son of God? That he longs to be in a relationship with you, that he longs to, to, to parent you, that he has your best interests at heart, that he is for you, he is not against you, that he sees your potential and he wants you to achieve that. That God is the, the, the best heavenly father you could ever, ever imagine. If you could just get up in the morning and just let God just parent you, just sit in his presence and let him hear his words that I love you, you're my child. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you do that in the morning, look out. It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. But we need to first understand how much God loves us and that he's our, he's our father. Paul reiterates this idea in, in Romans chapter 8. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That, that word Abba is the Aramaic term for the most intimate word for father you can think of. It's almost like a daddy or a papa. That we can call God our spiritual papa or daddy or whatever it is that you call your Father. God is that. And then once we begin to understand and appreciate God as our Father, then, then there are some very real uh, communal implications for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Namely, that we would begin to love one another with the same kind of love that God loves us. In verse 11, John picks up this theme. He says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 
John begins this whole passage. He says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, John uses that word should. It's the word that all the counselors say that we shouldn't use, right? Oh, I just used it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but, but John, you know, John didn't get that memo. And, and far from, from shaming everybody, anyone, I, I think what, what John is actually saying, that this is the normal, natural implication of someone who's connected to the source and origin and personification of love, that they just begin to love one another. He's saying the word should, like two plus two should equal four. Okay, and he's saying when people become connected to God as our Heavenly Father, then we should just normally, naturally begin to love one another. We begin to want to demonstrate and reflect that love to those around us. That we want to take on his essence and the characteristics of our Heavenly Father, reflect him to the world around us. And one of the best ways to do that is to love one another. Now, Let's be honest. It's a little bit easier to do with some of you than others. All right? I don't know most of you, okay? But I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. And I can tell you, some of you are easier to love than others. You know, some of us, because of our upbringing, maybe because of a brokenness of our background, we might be a little bit prickly. I mean, it might be a little bit difficult to, to love. You know, some of us, as my kids like to say, have issues. Have issues. They, say, they even say that about me. They say, Dad, you have issues. You know, and so, so if you have issues, you know, sometimes you can, you can be a little bit more difficult to love. But God still calls us to reflect the love that he has for us towards our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Even those with issues, right? And uh, I'll never forget, when we, when we started Kettlebrook uh, 17 years ago, we made, we made small groups, one of the core foundations of, of our church. We wanted everyone to be involved in a, in a small group. And, and, and it's in the context of those small groups that we live, begin to learn to live as a spiritual family, loving one another. And uh, I'll never forget the day that, uh, that one lady in our church came into my office. She sat down and she said, I want you to put me in a new group. I don't like the group that I'm in. I want, I want a new group. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about that. You know, what's, what's with your group? Oh, there's some people in there. Yeah, they really irritate me. Yeah, they really bug me. I'm like, okay, no, let's, let's talk about that. How are you ever going to learn to be patient with someone if I just put you in a group where you just like everybody that you're, you're with and you all agree with everybody? How are you going to learn to forgive other people when they offend you or when they slight you if you're not in a group like you're in right now? How are you going to learn to get along with people who might think differently than you or might even vote differently than you if you're in a group where you all agree on one another? See, small groups can often be the context where we learn to love one another and we begin to do that well. And Jesus, Jesus seems to insinuate that when we learn how to do this, when we learn how to love one another well, then the world is going to stand up and take notice. In John 13, verse 34, 35, he says this to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. One another. By this... By your loving one another, 
everyone will know that you are my disciples if you can just love one another. And in John 17, Jesus prays the prayer that we just read, that all of us might be one. That in, in essence, that we would learn to love one another. And that in doing so, the world may believe that you have sent me. We are a people called by God, invited to live as a family so that the world may believe that God the Father has sent his Son into the world. Living as a loving family, a loving spiritual family, is one of the best arguments for Jesus. In this age of division and and disunity in 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 our world, I don't believe, the world doesn't care about our arguments, our reasons, our apologetics for faith or anything like that. What they're asking is, does this Christianity thing really make a difference? Does it work? Can you guys show us something different than what we're seeing in the world around us? And if we can just get around to loving one another, they'll stand up and take notice. Living as a loving spiritual family is one of the best arguments for Jesus. The woman, Judy, that I began my message with, she eventually grew up. She grew up, she graduated from Carroll College. I know it's Carroll University now, but it's Carroll College back then. And she got married. And, and one day, she found herself in the hallways of Elmbrook Church. And it's while she was there at Elmbrook Church that she saw something different. She saw hippies and businessmen sitting next to each other in church. She saw families and singles getting along with one another. She saw people from very different socioeconomic backgrounds loving one another. And then her and her husband took the terrifying step of getting involved in one of their small groups. And it was in the, this context of the small group that they got a chance to observe a spiritual family up close and experience what it, what it looks like to love each other well. And it was in the, uh, the environment of that small group and that church that they had found that her faith began to just take off because she found a church that loved each other well and lived as a spiritual And I, for one, am extremely grateful that she did because Judy is my mom. And as her faith took off, our family got a chance to experience the kingdom. Folks, this whole idea of unity isn't something tangential, isn't something superficial. It's core and essential to who we are. And just imagine if Northbrook and Southbrook Elmbrook and Kettlebrook and all the brooks got to, got to do this well, then we would finally have one thing we desperately need. Credibility. And with that credibility, we would get to point people to Jesus and say, He's the reason we're able to love each other well. Let's pray. Father, I know you love this church so much. And, and Lord, all of us, whatever 
Brook Church we come from, we need to acknowledge and, and really repent that we haven't done this unity thing well. But Lord, 2022 is a new year. And, and Lord, we would ask that you would be kind and that you'd be gracious to us and that you would give us the capacity and the power by your Holy Spirit to love each other well, to live as a spiritual family so that we can show the world an alternative to what they're seeing around them. That they would stand up and take notice and that would give us this wonderful, wonderful opportunity tell them about Jesus. Pray that you would get the glory in this for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name.